0: The X3 are specialists in cricket kits, both on-field and off-field. Utilising their in-house design team, they can create your team an entirely bespoke cricket kit, including any colours, patterns or incorporating any images you desire. Your on-field cricket kit can be entirely unique to your club. Not only that, they have a huge range of off-field and training wear in stock where they can add your club badge. Available in 20 colours, they'll have your cricket team's colours Covered. Head to VX3 to find out more. Hello and welcome to the Wisden Cricket Weekly podcast. England are still world champions. We'll be talking about their World Cup win again today because why not really? We'll also be talking about whether or not Jos Butler is the greatest white ball batter of all time, England's ODI series against Australia that starts in fewer than 48 hours, Will Smee's decision to effectively retire from first class cricket before making his debut, a good win for Ireland over Pakistan, the passing of David English, and much more. I'm Yasrana, and with me today is Phil Walker and Ben Gardner. We'll be going to Mark Butcher later in the show. Worth saying, first up, that if you want immediate reaction to the World Cup final, me, Phil and Butch recorded a pod on Sunday. So scroll down your feed to absorb that if that's what you're after today. Phil, I realised about 20 minutes after that episode went online that I'm not sure we've mentioned Matthew Mott once during the entire world cup we're doing daily shows and i don't think he he popped up on on any of them he's not someone who seeks much if any public attention but he's a coach now with an incredible record he had a very good record before this world cup but it's even better now he's won two world cups this year having won the women's world cup with australia in april he now won four global icc tournaments And when he first took over, England lost home series to India and South Africa. And it's easy to forget that they've actually come quite a long way in a short period of time where there's a lot of change going on. So I guess he deserves credit, but that's also another appointment that Rob Key got right because there were some eyebrows raised when he was appointed.
1: Yeah, Key's had a really good year, um, an outstanding year. And he's brought in some common sense that was desperately needed. And he's injected a little bit of imagination into the test side, as we know. As we also know, the white ball size didn't require anything like root and branch change. Um, what they needed was a continuity coach, uh, somebody who would be prepared to do the, do the graft without requiring any of the spotlight. And it has absolute echoes of what they did with Bayliss. Um, Strauss, on that documentary, actually, that I mentioned a week or two ago, The Greatest Game, about that 2019 final, said that that was the specific requirement of the Bayliss appointment. Somebody who would be happy to be a backseat driver. And Mott, whose credentials, as you say, are outstanding, he now has in his back pocket uh, a 50-over Women's World Cup and a 20-over Men's World Cup. Uh, and he'd be well-placed to, to have a good run at the 50-over next year as well. And yet, we haven't seen any in-depth interviews. You don't really see him go up in front of the, the cameras particularly because there's no real requirement to. You see, that's the point with this particular appointment that at most, he has a two or three percent impact, positive impact or negative impact. This this thing runs um, is well established and it's it's embedded over many years now. And clearly, because he's done good work at all levels, he clearly knows his way around white ball cricket. So it's a very canny appointment. At the time when it happened, it was a bit like that Alan Partridge meme. Everyone just went, "Oh, okay, all right. okay. All right, fine. That's 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 our answer." Then is it? Mm. Uh, but that for the, the time and place was probably the, the the right shout, you know, and you don't know how much, how much say he would have had in selection in real terms, but I thought, and I, I wrote it at the time, I thought it was a really good squad that they picked. I'm not being wise after the event for once. I thought it was a really good squad that they picked. I liked the fact they brought, that they trusted in Woods' fitness, took a gamble on him, that they brought Wokes back, despite having not played very much. Uh, and the... The decision on Hales, again, wouldn't have been Mott's by any stretch, but he would have, he would have been another voice around that table. And I don't think there's any, any... And again, Sam Curran as well, becoming such a crucial part of that team, that perhaps would have had his, his fingerprints on it. And having said that he doesn't say much, he did say after the final that Curran could become one of the all-time greats, which is, which is a big call. Very big call. But again, he's alluding to the blo- the kid's intelligence, you know, and, and his intuitive uh, class as a cricketer, you know, the, how he preempts what's going to happen. So, he, he's, he's having some effect on this side, for sure. Uh, but even if he'd had even a minuscule effect, then in, in some respects, that's doing the job as well, you know, yeah. because you don't require anything like what you needed with the test side.
0: find it quite, quite interesting because you've got the Football World Cup starting next week and uh, every conversation about the England football team, Southgate's name comes up in the first five seconds where England have just won a World Cup and no one really talks about Matthew Mott. And I think it is interesting, a few YouTube commenters have pointed out that kind of other than you and Butcher side, we weren't actually that optimistic about how England would do in this tournament, partially because of how England had a did not have a good home summer in white ball cricket. They lost... T20 series to both South Africa and India. Yeah, they weren't 100% full strength, but it wasn't plain sailing. And that squad that won in Pakistan was quite different to the team that went to the World Cup.
2: Yeah. And in terms of continuity as well, obviously, there's continuity in terms of this was, uh, you know, a functioning England side that had good results. But f- firstly, their results since that 2019 World Cup hadn't been outstanding in the way that we'd come to expect. Uh, and also, actually, in that first, what, month, month and a half, two months, there was quite a lot of change you know you had owen morgan retire you had ben stokes retire from one of the formats and you had jason roy who'd been so central to not just the team but the whole philosophy lose all form and have a tough decision to make and it could have it kind of almost felt at one point like it could have fallen apart a bit like this was a side that was kind of aging together and they were all kind of entering that sort of early to mid 30s bracket and that actually this might be a tournament where we kind of saw the end of an england era as it is, it's kind of carried on. and I mean, the tricky thing is, is, is yeah, as Phil says, is it him or Rob Key or Joss Butler or whoever else he's picking the team? It's hard to tell. And these are good players who will get counsel from all sorts of sources. So is it Mott who has... So to take Sam Curran, for example, Sam Curran this summer in T20Is bowled 16 overs, had combined figures of 0 for 147 uh then so
0: pretty much going at 10 and he didn't take a wicket
2: yeah and then th- this winter he's going at he's going at he's going at sevens and averaging about 15 and he's obviously player of the tournament uh you know established as a a world-class death bowler now is that down to matthew mott it's 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 hard to say because no one in the camp has, has said it but even if it's not down to mott as phil says being able to to step away and allow current to to grow in that way is something that has that has paid dividends and then also and you look at the the achievement of the England side in terms of the players that they've been missing as well uh that they're missing if, if you'd ask them when Mott took over to write down what their best T2011 would have been if everyone was fit I think there are seven names in that team who weren't uh there for the World Cup final um and that's and to to, to be able to uh you know to to guide a team to a tournament with that is 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 a remarkable achievement.
0: Um, just on his shout on Sam Curran potentially being an all-time great, obviously it's a massive shout, but just looking up now, the, the, the guys who've been player of the tournaments at men's T20 World Cups before, Shahid Afridi when he was 30, Dilshan when he was in his 30s, Peterson when he was 30, Watson when he was 31, Coley, Coley, Warner when he was 35, and Curran. Well, Curran's so the first
1: to do it in his first T20 World Cup as well. And again, just in brackets, uh, he struck the ball as cleanly as any player all last summer um in four day and short form cricket batted three often for Surrey in their T20 side he's batted three for Chennai Super Kings um so when you factor in all of that then it becomes maybe not quite so outlandish a shout by Matthew Mott
0: yeah and, and also uh, i can't remember who it was but someone reported that he was he was set to be in England's test squad for Pakistan but with that extra pace and with how he batted in the summer that is an increasingly alluring idea Hold on. to see So back.
1: I asked you this a week or two ago yeah. um, in my ignorance, and he wasn't in the original squad, but now there's suggestions that he might be called up? Is that what you're saying? No, no, no. no. I'm, just, I'm just saying the oh, idea sorry. of
0: him returning to Test cricket and doing better than he did before. That must be that must be on England's mind, having seen him do this well in this World Cup.
2: Yeah, and two things to, to say so, on Firstly, we're talking about how he did before. It really wasn't that bad. I think even now, if you mm. look at his test record compared to... Broad Nansen after the same number of games I think his might be better still so like a lot of bowlers just take their time to find their feet and it's only because Curran had such a explosive start that we would that we saw that as like a drop-off rather than just like a young guy who obviously had some skills and wasn't yet quite sure of of his best role and also just in terms of Curran, it's like it's just a remarkable journey for him in terms of you know having missed so long with with a stress fracture you almost don't think of him as stress fracture type bowler but he was a he was out, you know, last last World Cup. Was he was in the squad originally, was he? Or was going to be in the squad and then was uh, a pundit back home in the studio. Uh, and now he's in the world of the tournament.
0: A hill that I'm willing to die on is that in the 2019 World Cup, Joss Butler's innings in the final was more important than Stokes' so Butler scored 59 off 60 to keep the rate down, etc. And Stokes did what Stokes did. According to the Quick Info Index thing, Butler's innings in this year's final had a higher batting impact than Stokes is Butler scored 26 off 17 to get the chase underway to get that rate down to six and over from the very start. Stokes, 52 at just over a run ball. We didn't really talk that much about Butler the other day, but I wanted to talk about where he ranks among the all-time men's limited overs batting great. He's got two World Cup wins now. One as captain, averages 40 at a strike rate of 120 in ODI cricket, which is bonkers, and then averages 50 at a strike rate of 150, opening in T20 guys. He's still only 32. There are two World Cups to come in the next two years. Where do you think he, he ranks now?
1: You, you also can't discount domestic cricket as well. He made four mm. tons in the IPL this year. So what's your specific question?
0: Who is the greatest? Is it him? And if he's not the greatest, how far off is he?
1: Oh, man.
0: But he's in that conversation now, like properly, properly in that conversation. I'm, I'm so let's true. have the you, conversation. You, you, need,
1: you need a number of things. You, you, you probably need three things. You need uh, to be revolutionary yes i remember sitting with my mate batchy in the pub watching him and kirk pollard for somerset in the t20 finals day many 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 years ago and i'd heard the name because he was tearing it up at school but nothing more than that and he outbatted pollard there and then and we both said to each other what's happening here who is this kid is he english is he really english so you need to be revolutionary undoubtedly he is you need to um, have one stuff. You need, crucially, the, the gongs to back it all up. And he, he now has two world titles, and he's had significant impact on both of those in the, in the gut, in the business end of those tournaments. And then you need the stuff that, that Ben gets all juiced up about. You need the numbers. You need the cold, hard numbers. And, and even though I knew them, when you read them out, averaging 40 at 120 batting in the middle order in ODI cricket he has what five of the quickest six or five of the quickest seven uh, ODI hundreds that England England players have ever made uh the other thing about about Butler is that he does it against all sorts and the the real quicks he can take down and against against the the turning ball you see what he does in the latter part of the innings. One of the be- the best... The two innings that stand out for me in bilateral series was the... No, it wasn't even in a bilateral series. The 100 he made against Sri Lanka on a on a crabby pitch where he was 60 off 50 and then was 100 off 65 or something obscene like that. And he'd really struggled to, to get it away and was holding the innings together and then he exploded. And the other innings is... And that was in a T20 game. And then the other innings is the 100 at Old Trafford when he was captain against Australia. And I think England were maybe four up in that series. Australia had sent an OK side over, but they had that big lad, Billy Stanlake, and he blew the top order away. And England were suddenly something like 20 for three or four. And Butler was opening. No, sorry, he wasn't opening in that game. He came in four four or five uh, and he made an unbeaten 100 to win that game and to, to whitewash that series against an Aussie side that was desperate not to be humiliated. And in those two innings, when the p- the pitch is flat and the boundaries are sixty yards, then he's AB de Villiers good. But what marks him out against somebody like AB, for example, would be that he does it in so many different roles against so many different styles of attacks all over the world. So totally, he's a part of that conversation. He's he's in the top six or seven names, and you can roll a few out now. You know, yeah. So I'm, I'm not going to say that he is he supersedes yeah. Sachin. who made what fifty one <laughs> ODI tons. I'm not saying that or Viv or any of the rest of them.
0: Yeah, so I've got a shortlist of Viv, Sachin, Coley, Donny, De Villiers, Gale, Bevan. What do you think, Ben?
2: Yeah, well, I, one thing that fascinates me on Butler, I think, is that um, I don't think anyone ever thought he'd be this consistent. Like, when England picked him originally, they knew he could clear the ropes. They knew he played this funky scoop shot. Mm-hmm. I think they thought he, he knew he was his new age player. I don't they thought he was going to be averaging, you know, 14 ODIs in, in 50 and T20s in, in when they found his position like that that's that's the thing that really stands out is how he he obviously has all these gifts and yet he knows when to apply them like uh, and he so rarely picks the wrong approach for a certain situation like uh you get a lot of players who obviously say that's the way i play or uh um they have a specific thing they can do really well but butler can do all the things in in, in t20 cricket you and in odi cricket with with that 100 against australia so he's he's uh yeah he's he's in that 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 is the the eight I guess and Butler is edging up that list I suppose uh, if you're asking me where, where would I put him I think I'd put him I guess across both formats I'd put him ahead of Gale I'd put him ahead of I mean it's obviously difficult comparing across zeros when some didn't play t20 but I'd probably put him ahead of Bevan as well and probably ahead of Dhoni. so then he's in that top five is that. Sachin Coley is top four. Satchin Coley Richards Butler. For, for me best of luck to you, ben. Yeah, Ben. For for, for for me, Viv Richards is still the top. In terms of if you're comparing him against the era, he yeah. was so far ahead. He was
0: So he actually so just on that, average forty eight in ODI's strike rate of ninety. Yeah. That you said before that is the equivalent now that, effectively that,
2: of that that's the thing. If 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 you look at how people were averaging that time and scoring that time, that's basically averaging sixty. So Coley's average and Butler's strike rate basically in ODI cricket. And obviously he has the, uh, you know, the, the 100 in a World Cup final, the two World Cup wins. Um, but yeah, but, but I think, and the, the other thing as well is that you say Butler isn't done yet. Is it just Gilchrist, McGrath and Ponting that have won three World Cup titles? Is uh, that three right? men's World Cup titles. I think, I was trying to think about it just now, but I think that's right. I don't think any other team, the span would work for that. Um, so if, and so he's got what, at least two more shots, maybe a third shot at joining that club. And then when you, yeah, when you combine the revolutionary aspect, the pure numbers aspect, the trophy-winning aspect, uh, just the thrill aspect of watching him bat,
1: oh, it's a really, really compelling case. Mm. But then they're all compelling. All of those names changed the game. Uh, and I think you we can legitimately put his name in there as well. The fact that he faces the new ball, the real uberquicks, the fact that he made his name as a number six finisher, exploder, if you like. The fact that he can play slow heartbeat cricket when he has to, he's often 25 from 25 when 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 times are tough. So he's a complete player, absolutely complete player.
0: And I think that's what marks him out over the other T20 openers at the moment is that, Ben, you talked about it, but he properly, he's so good at assessing what is required, reading a pitch, knowing how good various opposition bowlers are, knowing when and who to target, etc. cetera. Um, just on, you know, kind of demonstrating how people change the game. Obviously, Richards' numbers are, are crazy, but Sachin averaged 48 in ODI cricket, strike rate of 90, 4,500 as an opener. Obviously, he played a lot, but that is the kind of output that we see nowadays quite a lot, but Sachin was doing that well before everyone else.
2: And actually, were those Sachin's numbers as an opener or as numbers Yeah, overall? just as an opener. Yeah, because, because I think, you can in a way you can actually this rarely happens with Sachin but you can look at his numbers and think they, that they don't quite do him justice like he had what an 80 game stretch at the start of his career before they kind of took a punt and put him to open and then he smashed a whirlwind 80 odd against New Zealand and actually yeah that that did change the game all of a sudden you had uh, an opener who was being so consistent but also actually properly attacking and setting the tone rather than either having a pinch hitter or someone who would take their time to get set. He was scoring big and quickly, which I don't think anyone had really done mm. up to that point.
0: Cody averages 58, 4, in ODI cricket, obviously had played the tournament in two T20 World Cups, had arguably the best ever IPL um, back in 2016. So across both white ball formats, Dhoni and Bevan averaging 50 in ODI cricket as, as finishers.
2: Yeah, Cody's interesting because I think if you ask some of the, the stats guys, they might hesitate to give him the rank of like, T20 great I suppose in terms of that he wouldn't he would sometimes struggle to match I guess that explosiveness but that big game pedigree does just count for for so much like a like the fact that he is so good in T20 World Cups that just it it almost makes it better than if he was that good all the time in a way you know. Also
1: Um, also with Coley we're still in the midst of it and obviously we are with Butler as well but the Coley story and his place in the Pantheon will probably be we can talk about it with a bit more authority in three years' time when he has finally finished. Because if we'd have this conversation maybe 18 months ago, then it's probably, in white ball cricket, it's Coley and then Viv and then then the rest, right? Um, when you think about his average chasing, the targets that he would rein in just day by day, week by week, the fact that he, he first broke the ceiling on what you could do in the IPL you know he made those those 3 or 4 hundreds whatever it was in that, in that in that one one campaign he was rewriting the rules as a as a white ball batter averaging literally 70 something in ODI cricket chasing uh, but then the game took it took its took a bite out of him and brought him down merely into the into the category of the great, rather than probably yeah. the greatest. I
0: still find it amazing, though, that even when he's not quite at his peak now, he still has a tournament where he scores 450s. And I think at least part of England's thinking, making sure that India didn't chase in the semi-final, was like, Coley loves a chase in a semi-final. Like, you make mm-hmm. sure he still has that impact now. And the one player I really wanted to talk about, so you've got Gail as well, who's got people calling him the Bradman of T20 cricket. Way out in front in terms of 100, excellent ODI record as well. A really interesting one is De Villiers because he averaged 53 in ODI, strike rate of 100, big tick in changing the game um, as well. The, the, those pairs of 150-odd scores getting the West Indies in, in 2015. The 2015 World Cup we were talking about yesterday, Ben, one of the great what-ifs. But also with De Villiers, his peak coincided with a period where there weren't that many global tournaments. Um, he had the 2015 World Cup, uh, and then this is a period where he had maybe six or seven ridiculous IPLs, there wasn't a T20 World Cup from 2016 to 2021 and he retired from international cricket just before the 2019-50 over World Cup. So Davili is at his very, very, very best, actually didn't have that many major tournaments.
2: Well, yeah. And I guess, Phil, do you think it, does it count against Davili and also Kohli that, you know, so Kohli obviously won the 2011 World Cup and I guess the 2013 Champions Trophy and maybe it was might have been the top scorer in the final of the 2015 Champions Trophy, but the 2011 World Cup was right at the start of his, his journey as international cricketer, I guess. Uh, neither of them, you know, they both played for RCB this whole time, neither of them have won the IPL. Um, does that count against them at all? That, like, that statement global tournament win that is, like, is theirs and theirs alone, almost?
1: It helps to complete the circle, uh, but you won't find me saying that because AB de Villiers hasn't won the IPL or won a world t- title with South Africa, it somehow reflects badly on him as a player or takes a chunk out of his legacy. Because uh, some players are, they work on a sl- on a different plane. That said, if we are having this silly pub style conversation and we are looking for the completeness in a player, then the fact that Butler now has those two gongs in the back in his back pocket, as well as the numbers, as well as the revolutionary. Uh, rewriting of the game element to his story as well makes him a very, very difficult bloke to argue against for sure, um, but all of these people, as I said earlier all of these all of these names started doing things differently. you know Gilchrist deserves his name in there as well, I think um, Bevan rewrote the rules of how you, of how you chase. There was no target that was that was unreachable, uh, and he would do it by running hard. He wasn't a big hitter, but he'd run hard twos, threes, and so on. Uh Dhoni took that on again and pioneered being the the hitting that hitting the winning run in that second innings. And there was some kind of freakish figure that like forty six of India's fifty wins in one day cricket had come with Dhoni not out at the end at one point in a in a row. You know, this is an incredible sequence. Um and then you take it back a bit further, you're talking about running between the wickets, Dean Jones, right? He's not not in this list, okay? And looking at the numbers, it's fair that he's not in this list. But he wasn't number one for 80-odd games in the late 80s with Viv, you know, also prowling around. And the reason was because he, he saw, if you're playing in Australia, and they didn't bring the boundaries in in the 80s, if you're playing in Australia, then there's twos, threes, and all-run fours out there for you. Uh, and he could whack it. Jones but he also brought in that ultra athleticism that you see now that wasn't replicated by other cricketers at the time so he was a, he was a trailblazer Viv was obviously a trailblazer because he was he's the genius his genius you could go you could play this game for hours and hours and hours but the point is Butler is in that top half a dozen names
0: yeah I'm just going to finish a chat with I think the most ridiculous stat we've had so far AB de Villiers World Cup numbers in 2015 eight games seven innings 482 runs, uh, average of 96, strike rate of 144, a reminder that this was a 50 over World Cup. Yeah, That is totally can, ridiculous. Can I
2: just touch on that what if that you mentioned uh, in that semi-final? So you, you, you remember this, Phil, that AB uh, was obviously having that one that, won the great World Cups. Uh, and then in that semi-final against New Zealand, he was just getting going. He was either side of 50, can't remember exactly which. And that's when it starts to rain. Uh, and that lops off about seven overs at the end of the inning. So it goes from, I think, needing twelve, having 12 overs left to having four or five left. And is also comes back after that rain break. His rhythm's gone, and he gets up quite soon afterwards. If he has that 12 overs when he's set and in that form, that's easily another maybe 100. Genuinely, the sky's the limit with how many runs he could have. Had. That could be 100, another 150 mm. onto, onto the total. Mm. And then South Africa win that game, and then you've got Aby de Villiers in a World Cup final against Australia uh, at the G. Uh, that doesn't happen, the rain comes, he gets out,
1: New Zealand winner, winner classic. But again, because it's a team sport, you you can't, you can't take a chip out of a player because they have, and I know you're not there, I know you're not, you're saying in some respects he was deprived of that chance at, you know, immortality or however you want to sort of cliche put it, Uh, he doesn't have that eyeballing destiny moment in a world final, which is a, which is a great shame for him as a player, but a shame for South African cricket as well. There's a lot of schadenfreude around South Africa's ongoing choking. I don't personally feel that, you know. I think they're an absolutely essential part of the ecosystem of the game. I think they're quite a likeable team, especially at the moment. They've had some all-time great cricketers who haven't, for whatever reason, various quirks and twists of fate, haven't been able to have that, have that moment. And, you know, from what they've given to, to cricket, especially since readmission, they, des- they deserve that, you know, and I uh, quietly, I root for them in these world t- world tournaments.
0: Yeah, just on that uh, Davili's game, he was 60 off 38 when the rain came down with 12 overs to go. The game got turned into a 43 over game and then he scores five off his next seven. And that's the end of the innings. But yeah, wherever Butler ranks, he is in very good company. Billy asks, hi, everyone. Just wanted to, to ask, how much of an impact do you think Indian players not being allowed to play in other T20 competitions has on their performance in world events. It feels like when it comes down to it, they they always fall short. In my opinion, their lack of playing elsewhere has impacted their ability to read conditions, know players and understand the flow of a game like England or Pakistan players are quite often able to do. Cheers. Love the podcast. Billy. We've had quite a few questions of this ilk in the last few days since India got knocked out. Ben, what do you think? Yeah, I think it does have...
2: A, a bit of an impact I think the IPL is an interesting tournament obviously in loads of ways stupid thing to say but uh uh in, in that it's it's often taken as a metric of a player's overall quality which makes sense from some points of view you know it's played every year there's a big sample size of how, how long it is now uh basically all the best players will be there so you can get a bit of a rank in terms of who's best new but it is a specific set of conditions and actually this t20 world cup in australia was almost as alien as you can get in terms of the how it changed how t20 cricket needed to be played basically in terms of how kind of just how big the the playing areas were um there were some stats going on that actually the it was much less often that the teams that won on the boundary count won the game and actually much more often that the teams that won on the lower dot ball percentage won the game which is kind of flips around how t20 uh normally works and you did see that there were teams that really able to take the most of that in terms of running hard and picking the gaps in some ways that's that's India's game but in others you know it's just you would think that if if they had uh just had a bit more experience of playing in Australia if you know if 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 Roach Sharma had a big bash season would he have played the innings in the (laughs) semi-final I don't know um it's probably not gonna happen I think I mean there's so much else that means that uh I I don't know if it matters too much the BCI's coffers whether India win T20 World Cups or not, Uh, it's more of a pride thing. And um, uh, there's a lot else that means that they would rather their players didn't go and play in T20 leagues around the world. But I do think, I mean, mean, it must have an impact, right? You're going to be better at playing in Australia if you've played a bit more in Australia. Uh, And that goes for wherever else a World Cup's going to be.
1: There you go. If we're we're giving... Oh, getting into trouble. If we're giving 20 20 over cricket... the, say, the equal footing of sort of sporting significance and skills-based significance, if we're putting on an equal footing with Test cricket, uh, and it's arguable whether we should, but certainly that's the direction of travel, in inverted commas, as people like to say these days. If we're doing that, then of course it matters because nobody is telling anybody that if you're a, a young Indian batter or a Pakistani batter or an English batter and you've never played in Australia before, whether this is 20-over 20, 20 cricket, 50-over cricket, or four-day cricket, or five-day cricket, clearly, you're going to be better equipped to deal with the vagaries of Australian pitches if you've played there before. Mm-hmm. Just as A-teams, Lions teams, it's absolutely incumbent on the boards to send them all over the world because, you know, that opens you up to how, to, how to, to learn about these conditions. Stands to reason. What you have seen, by the way, with the BCCI is that they have released certain players to come and play in England to get their bearings. So you had Shreya's Iyer to come over and play at Lancashire. And you had helped me out. You had other examples, yeah, right? Washington Sundar. Washington Lancashire. Sundar also Cirologic went to Lancashire. Pajara. So they they have quietly acknowledged that if they want to continue to be really competitive and beat England in England, which is their other big, big series in Test cricket along with along with the Australian series, then they need their players to to acclimatise. Um the dimensions of ipl cricket are, are are very key if you are training and if you are range hitting knowing that your boundaries are 55 60 meters on average or maybe 65 70 meters tops and then you take all that training into australia then you're getting you are getting caught at deep with wicket 10 yards in mm-hmm. so naturally it's a different game right so you have to have a different a different kind of approach now it's not a different game but it is but the requirements, you do need to think a little bit further outside the box, you know, and, and obviously the pitches themselves. So, so, of course, yeah. But as Ben says, there's all kinds of massive socioeconomic reasons and huge financial reasons why, you know, this conversation will probably probably die a death. But no doubt they'll be having it in India as we speak, no doubt.
0: I think Dravid acknowledged it, but said we need to work out how that would affect other competitions in other series. Um, Precious Salami asks... Uh, which is a great name. Why on earth are England playing a meaningless 3 ODI series against Australia starting on Thursday? They will still be hungover, FFS.
2: Uh, yeah, well, I don't think anyone really knows. And, you know, you'd hope this would be some sort of like Nadir, sort of like the people would see this and realise how ridiculous the schedule is. But we, I mean, you know, it's already happened after uh, the t 20 Cup last year. India and in New Zealand were playing a series, uh, again, I think four days after that finish. I mean, the players don't want to be playing it. Mo and Ali has said it's describe it as horrendous. He says, he says horrible, horrible. He said just okay.
0: playing playing a series three days after winning a World Cup is horrible.
2: Yeah, um, and it's hard. I mean, we'll wait to see what the crowds are, but considering what they were often like in the in the T20 World Cup and what they were like for the T20I series before the World Cup, uh, not optimistic. They'll be you know uh, incredible spectacles from that point of view. Um, so I guess it's it. I think w- one thing is is that. Australia have a the cricket Australia has a more uh combative relationship with their various broadcasters than the ECB do with Sky. Um and some people might even say the ECB relationship with Sky is, is too cosy, but you're not gonna have, you know, Sky kicking up a big fuss over what they see as the perceived quality of the offering uh, that they're getting from um uh, from the ECB, at least not publicly, that might happen behind closed doors, but it does happen behind closed doors. But uh there have been some quite public disagreements. In terms of when uh, series have been moved around, or lengthened, or shortened, often for like completely understandable reasons in in COVID, etc. But that uh, that some of the broadcasters in Australia have been quite publicly unhappy about, and so they have needed to be concessions because of how important this TV money is. And I think that's where this fits in, basically. That I suppose the whatever game England plays, no matter how meaningless and pointless it is, I guess has some guarantee TV ratings. Um, that uh that will appease broadcast to some extent so I think that that's that's why this series is happening and I guess it'd be a certain case of a DCB scratching Cricket Australia's back so this will happen vice versa so that's that's the logic if you like but it's not I mean it doesn't help the players it doesn't really help the sport I think it's kind of not being able to see the wood for the trees in terms of understanding what would be a beneficial schedule for the game to grow as a whole, I guess.
0: Mm. Well, we will not be doing daily podcasts on that series. In all seriousness, though, he's quite a big series for Jason Roy. He is? Why why, (laughs) why, why, why is that funny? Um, it's, it's, it's a really big series for him. Hales has just had the World Cup he's had. Salt is obviously liked by the England hierarchy and he's coming in, must be a very strained dynamic for him, coming in straight in. They've just won a World Cup. And for him, it's absolutely massive with the, with the 50 over World Cup less than a year away now.
2: Yeah, and, and Hales is the only player in that World Cup squad who's not going to uh, to Pakistan for the tests or staying for the ODI series, which is also quite funny. <laughs> I remember after the... Uh, this, this was when I was I was... I wasn't as uh, fully following cricket as much as I was now after the 2010-11 Ashes so I knew I knew Cook had, had a brilliant series obviously and then he is the one player who flies home because he's not in the ODI and te- <laughs> T20 eyes I'm like hang on this is the guy that was just really really good why is he why is he the one player who I'm seeing getting getting off a plane in England right now that doesn't make any sense and that is do you think Hales has a chance
1: in the 50 overside? Yeah definitely definitely
0: he I mean he was he was in the 50 overside until Bristol uh, yeah. he's got an amazing odi record jason roy's lack of form was so uh it was so bad in the summer that you think that a change of formats probably not going to change that he's had time off now and maybe he's reset roy has a tough series it's gonna it be very very tempting to bring hell straight in
2: and especially when i think uh england obviously have a few other options they've got the likes of vince and salt as you say but we've seen vince not crack it before and i think there'd also be some to better whether salt was the finished article yet if you get to this well but the, the end of the summer next year and England haven't landed an alternative then actually I could almost see Hales coming to that World Cup squad even without having played much 50 over cricket they might think we have a world-class white ball opener let's get him in for the thing that matters
1: as it stands Ben Stokes isn't going to be in it so here's a question for you boss do you keep the door open to Ben Stokes pretty much all the way through next summer?
0: 100% Ben Stokes was effectively retired from T20i cricket to be honest and then he came straight back for a World Cup in a format that I think is his worst. And he's still, I don't think, that good at it and still helping him win the World Cup. He is a much better ODI batter than T20. I think even if he doesn't bowl, Stokes comes straight back into that team, especially and even in if he does as well. Even until, if-
1: you know, the three or four warm-up games in September or whatever it might be. He's just
0: done it in a format he's worse at in one the World Cup. So yeah. I think you, you, keep, you keep the door open. To be
1: honest, I would
2: actually be surprised if Stokes doesn't play that World Cup, I think. Um... Yeah, I mean, it's, it's it, and Matthew Mott was saying uh, to the press that uh, uh, which is odd. So when Stokes made the decision, he said you know you can just take a break for as long as you need from ODI cricket and just come back in whenever, basically. And Sorry, so Mott said Mott that. Mott said that, and he also and you can kind of unretire whenever. So the
1: door, the door isn't just open. The door. is why they've employed please, This is this, <laughs> is this classic no nonsense, straight up and down yeah. Aussie. Um, do, do, um, you, do you know um,
0: hear England's schedule in ODI cricket? Do you Go wanna, do you yeah, gotcha. Uh, oh, can,
1: I, can
2: I see how much I can guess?
1: They've got series
2: this winter against Africa and Bangladesh. Is that right? Yeah, that and that's is all correct. their
0: series, uh, and the Australia one, obviously. Yeah. yeah. Uh, then next summer they've got uh, they've got six games against New Zealand and Ireland at home. So they actually don't have that many games. That's that's fewer than I thought. So they've got six, nine, Fifteen. Fifteen yeah. ODIs before the World Cup.
1: So so Stokes's, uh year is going to be very unbalanced because he's going to have. All of those test matches, and then he's going to have a load of T20s as well, no doubt. Uh, and then he's going to be done, going to be done by the end of the fifth test against Australia, which is all done by the end of what, July. July? Yeah. Yeah. So then he's got, he's looking at six months of, of not doing much. Uh, I'd be surprised if he doesn't uh, turn up in that first game of that World Cup batting at, batting at five. Mm. I'd be very surprised if he's not there. And disappointed as well, you know.
0: Well, next we're going to talk about Will Smead, the 21-year-old Somerset batter, who's decided to sign a white ball-only contract. First, let's hear Mark Butcher's take on the news, as well as his tribute to David English, the character behind the Bunbury Festival, the tournament through which the majority of future England Test players come through. Mark, within 24 hours of England winning the World Cup on Sunday, 21-year-old Somerset batter Will Smead announced that he was signing a white ball-only contract, effectively removing himself from first-class cricket before he'd played a first-class game. And it's an interesting story because he's one of the most talented young bats in the country. He's played for the England Lions already. He was the first player to score 100 in the 100. He got a couple of 90 odds in the PS as a 20-year-old last year. He's a proper prospect. Um, what do you make of the decision, the youngest person, to do that, really?
3: Um, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm not surprised. Um, I, I was uh, Given the fact that he hasn't managed to break into the first-class team, and given the fact that he hasn't scored any runs in first-class cricket, when he's played, not first-class cricket, but long-form cricket, when he's played in the second team, um, and given that the the world seems to be opening up for him without him having done any of that stuff in the past, it just see, it seemed like it was it was the most likely course of action. Um, whether or not that's going to harm him at some point down the down the line remains to be seen. Um, yeah. But I, it's it, it doesn't surprise me at all. It, it, in fact. Listening to his interview on Somerset TV last night, it it sort of occurred to me that I didn't really, I wasn't convinced that he really enjoyed it very much. Um, And given an an era whereby you have options that players of of my generation and and ones, um, you know, subsequent to my career never had, um, it just seemed like a, a, a relatively not that it's a non-story, because of course it might open the floodgates for other young players to to take on exactly the same decision. But it it didn't shock me, put it that way.
0: Yeah, he mentions he did an interview with Will first in the Telegraph, and he specifically compared what it's like playing in front of packed stadia um to playing in a in a field with no one no one watching and how it's more difficult for him to get himself up for those games he he's doing what he enjoys which i guess we should commend and shouldn't really judge him for but in terms of his development and the development of um a real real prospect here the england side that won the world cup 2 days ago pretty much everyone in it played loads of first class cricket in the formative years of their career. Do you think there's a danger? I mean, it's a very brave decision from Smead for a number of reasons, but do you think there's a danger that it might actually hold him back in T20 cricket?
3: Um, Well, it hasn't done so far. And again, you know, we're we're comparing apples with oranges because, again, a lot of those players, um, particularly the older ones, there was no option to do what he's done um, back then. So, look, in terms of... You know, I remember watching him get sort of roughed up by by um, by Scrimshaw in that uh, in that semi final where Derby broke the the, the scoring record. Um, you know, not perhaps not having the tools to kind of take care of himself when the ball was flying around at, at neck and chest high. Um, you know, things that you would need, obviously, if you were going to have a, a career, a long career in the four day game. Um, however, you know, that's something specific that he can that you can drill down and, and learn. And and work out for himself, albeit that you know you only have to do it for very short periods of time in the T20 game. Um, so I, I'm not sure that it's going to hurt him to, particularly, you know, that he's got where he's got by by just playing T20 in short-form cricket. Um, and he will, you know, the, the thing that bothers me that not doesn't bother me, but the thing that concerns me perhaps is that at this very young stage in his career, he's now gonna have periods of time where he where he has no competitive cricket to play, or at least. Um, you know, front of house competitive cricket. So in the English summer, you know, if he doesn't get picked up in the IPL, say, for example, um, that sort of early part of the of the season when uh, when championship cricket is being played, et cetera, et cetera. He's going to be sat around kicking his heels and then you can come in cold. We saw it. We saw it with people who say Kevin Peterson, for example, at the end, back end of his career, when he quit playing first class cricket, he found it very, very difficult to maintain his standards because he didn't have the chance to go back and play at a slightly slightly lower tempo to try and, you know, to to to, to get the feel for, for batting. Um, but of course, Will Smith has never done that. So it's not something he's going to miss. So you know, I think I think he's going to be okay. To be mm. honest, it, it sets an interesting precedent for for young players going forward who might who might think that that's entirely the the right thing for them to do as well. Um, you know, why slog your guts out trying to trying to play a format that perhaps you don't enjoy a great deal? You're not going to have a particular chance um, of of playing international cricket, at test match cricket, given that your preference is for bashing it out of the park. What might happen
0: in the future then is players like Smead who make decisions like this, their off season is pretty much English summer. The Windsor is totally packed with T twenty competition after T twenty competition, so the time of the year they actually get their break is when the county championships happening in early May.
3: One that... Quite a bit of pressure with that as well, I think. I mean, that's the the other side of it is that you, you know you you're reliant upon the scouts and the uh, and the management teams of, of franchises who have the entire world to pick from. I mean, let's face it, you know, it, in the if you're playing for for Somerset in the Blast or. or, or um you know, uh, 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 one of the teams in the hundred, the the core of those players are England players, right? Are English players, and so that so the pool is the pool is not quite so big. The pool for the IPL for the South Africa league for all the other leagues is absolutely enormous. You're competing against the very best in the world all the time. So if you you know you could you could feasibly you have a, a dodgy tournament somewhere, or you just kind of don't have a terrific amount of form, and then suddenly all of those opportunities disappear. Um, for you. So it's not without its gamble, without its risks, and it's not, not a not a a, um, a a risk-free strategy.
0: I guess two, two more things that I found quite interesting about it. One is, I think about Will Jacks, who's got his first England test call-up this winter. He's someone who had a breakthrough first-class season at 23 this summer, averaging 50 the bat, you know, chipping in with a few wickets with the ball as well. But a few years ago, he was really struggling in red ball cricket, but was thriving in white ball cricket. And I wonder if there will be players like Jax who have the potential to play test cricket that end up making the decision too early, basically. Although I think it is worth saying that Smead points out himself that not many will make this decision. He's in a pretty unique set of circumstances for someone to have done so well in T20s and done really not that well in 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 um, Red Bull.
3: Yeah, I mean, and also it's not it's not irreversible, is it? I mean, that he is so young. Will Jax would have been... Um, you know, under 25 had he decided to make that call. And thankfully he didn't. And it doesn't surprise me that he didn't, being that he's, you know, at Surrey and that he's got the likes of Stuart and Batty and people like that around. He probably would have talked him out of it. You know, that it, Will Smead might might turn around in a couple of years' time if things don't go exactly the way he wants to and and, and think, well, maybe maybe I could go back to to the idea of playing some of that. It's not irreversible. I, I think it's unlikely for him that he will, though. I think he's, he's, he's set a course... And you know, I was I was kind of thinking this. It was I remember when I made the decision that I was going to quit playing cricket without without having anything particular to go to. It kind of happened in the middle of a season with injuries and stuff. And I remember the sort of like the, the the slight exhilaration of pulling the rug out from under my own feet and thinking, okay, well now you've got to now you've got to make this work, whatever in whatever sphere that you decide to go on. And Smeed, you know, he seems like a driven young fella. I think he will have exactly that same sort of sense of exhilaration. I have made this call. It's a big one. In some people's eyes, it's a massive call. Um, but I now have to to get my get my nut down and make sure this thing works, um, works out for me. Um you know, and having and, and narrowing the focus can sometimes bring the very best out of people.
0: Either way, it'll be exciting to see what happens. He's a he's one hell of a talent. One one quite a sad piece of news over the weekend, butch David English, the man behind the Bunbury festivals, passed away at the age of seventy six. For people who don't know who he is, can you just kind of paint a picture of what he's like as a character? Because he, I think, among ex pros and current pros, he is he's, he's a bit of a legend.
3: He's a, it's just an incredible man, just the most the most. Extraordinary amount of energy. Um, he never forgot a person's name. He met you once and he'd know your name. He'd remember, you know, if you'd given him any personal information whatsoever, he would remember that. Um, always cracking jokes, always wildly enthusiastic. Um, he was a movie star. He managed the Bee Gees and, and Eric Clapson and Derek and the Dominoes back in the 70s. Um, but huge, huge cricket fan. I mean, that's, that was the love of his life was that was the game of cricket. And of course, you know, set up the the, the Bunburys um, with this sort of the under under 15 um, England schools cricket festival. It became the Bunbury festival and he became synonymous with that um, in his later years. I think there's some somewhere in the region of, of 130 plus um Test match cricketers have played in that festival, have gone through that festival. So it's kind of you know pretty much everybody I played in it back in eighty seven or something like that. People like John Crawley, Freddie Flintoff, Reese Topley, Latterly, um, Joe Root. You know, you name it. The guy, the guys have got have gone through that festival and have, have known and it would have come through knowing Dave, um, affectionately known as the Loon. I used to call him Doctor Dave. He somehow managed to get a doctorate from somewhere. So whenever we corresponded on email, I always called him Doctor Dave. But he was—he was an absolute madman, um, you know. And the, and the loon was extremely apt um, and extremely affectionate as far as his nickname was concerned.
0: Yeah, he. Ten of the team that won the twenty nineteen World Cup went through the Bunroo festivals. Uh, nine of the team that won the two thousand five Ashes went through them as well. So his impact on en- English cricket was was extraordinary.
3: Absolutely incredible, and the, you know, the millions of pounds raised, um, you know, for charity uh just a just larger than life character um you know it's uh, from a personal point of view uh you know i remember him for that from that under that that festival back in 87 um and then it, our paths just kept crossing between between then and then and you know get emails from him congratulating me for my england test debut but then sort of it, in terms of the, the the other thing that i do that my, my music career Dave um, came to me back in I don't know if it was ninety eight or ninety nine and said like I want you to we're going to put a band together um, and you're going to play the the PCA Awards Festival. Um, he said don't worry about it we'll get we'll get all the top players and you're going to be opening that you know you're going to be playing the Royal Albert Hall and I was like jeez you know you, are you insane? So my band included he got Bill Wyman to play bass he had um, Paul Carrot playing keyboards the great John Altman, um just playing keyboards and, and and saxophone I had um who else do we have up there goodness gracious! john Etheridge, incredible jazz jazz drummer um ray cooper who would have been who would have been on tour with elton john doing percussion for him just during the course of that summer um all these sort of legendary players and me up up front and so and we ended up doing that for something like six or seven years on the trot playing the alba hall he also um he, uh, he heard me play the, the song that I wrote for Ben Hollyo at, at his at his funeral at Southern Southern Cathedral. And he organized a recording session that sort of got me for the first time ever in a recording studio with with um, with another bunch of great players. Uh, and we recorded that single. And, and that was, you know, we raised a load of money for charity with that. So beyond the sort of like the cricketing connection, if it hadn't have been for David, I probably, you know, I, I wouldn't do what I do now in terms of in terms of the music as well. Um, and so, you know, we became very, very close. Uh, and, um, you know, he was always incredibly sort of supportive, enthusiastic with everything that I did. Uh, and, and to this day, you know, he, he sends out these sort of group, once he discovered email, because he always used to handwrite stuff to people. So you'd get letter through the door, use this same sort of very, very, um, very light colored blue ink, you know, like sky blue ink. And this big scroll would be on the thing. So you'd know it was from Dave you know and either he'd be either be asking you to write an article for a bumbery catalog or something or for you know to come along and play whatever game it is at finchley cricket club and we'll have a big old booze up whatever <laughs> um and then he discovered email and discovered that he could you know so he'd be sending out these huge group emails and cut co- a copy in virtually every england cricket ever that ever existed sending <laughs> just sending out these bizarre jokes and and uh, slightly uh, slightly um, non pc um photographs of various various people that he come across in his time he was just a, com- a completely and utterly infectious character um and i'm gonna miss him
0: mm, that's a lovely tribute butch um he sounds like an extraordinary man our thoughts of course with his friends and family um cheers for your time mark we'll catch you next week ben you've not played a first class game either have you withdrawn from first class cricket <laughs> <laughs> no I'm actually, I'm actually still
2: holding out i think um uh given you're, the way, you're rubbish though no given the way wrestling rotation's going and with the amount of stress fractures that are, that are hobbling around i wonder if i could uh if i could be
1: in line listener he smells of linseed oil by the way or whatever it is deep <laughs> heat deep something heat like that you well, smell w- of dressing w- woken rooms. up with it
2: with a crick in my uh, crick in my neck unfortunately so if i'm a less than 100 percent, that's why uh but yeah the will Smith thing is is interesting if only because uh uh it's new um i don't think it is that much in that he's young Yes. people have done this before yeah, yeah, but they've yeah. paid loads, yeah. I, I don't think we're heading for, you know, a, a slew of uh players who are going to be um taking this route because Smead is a is a special case in terms of how talented he is, and because so far that talent has been only expressed in in, in white ball cricket. Um then there there might possibly be a few others who uh choose to make that decision a bit earlier than they otherwise would, but that's not because of Smeed, that's just because of the way the direction of tra- of travel that cricket is heading in I think it was quite interesting though um, uh, just going back to an interview did with Joe Harmon uh, back in uh, in June I think it was so they spoke during that uh, first England New Zealand test match and Smead wasn't watching it he just woken up for a nap by the time they had a chat he said he doesn't watch much test cricket but did have championship ambitions at the time so it was a massive goal of his but I think interestingly is how then he saw that how Red Bull cricket could benefit his White ball game which I guess he is now diverse away from us so at the time, he said. In red Bull stuff, if you can nail the fundamentals of that, it only helps your white ball cricket. So whenever I've had the opportunity back in Taunton, I've been working my red Bull stuff. I haven't done much white ball practice when I'm home. I guess he wants to be doing that white ball practice when he is home, and also depending on how his career goes, he might not be home all that much. I guess um, it's not out of the question he gets an IPL deal. I suppose, especially because he's, he's what with the Mumbai franchise in uh, in the Stafford tournament So if he does well there, then actually. Mumbai will have seen that and like what they look at and they're not afraid to take a punt on a a young player who they think is the next big thing if you look at Javal Brevis, Brevis or uh, Tristan Subs with Mumbai as well wasn't he um so and, and Jansen initially yeah yeah so so it's I, I think an IPL deal if he has a good winter is that the question the, the more interesting thing is what happens if he when he does have uh, a bit of a lean period as we've seen happen with other bright young things well with basically every bright young thing that's ever existed has had a lean period and uh, and those contracts dry up a bit um I do wonder sometimes if players just do benefit from having two hours of kind of scratching around in front of no one in a championship game, um, and that's something that Smeed won't have. But I, you know, I, I I struggle to get head up about this
0: thing. I mean, obviously, it's not a moral failing on Smeed's part that he doesn't like
1: playing first class cricket be forgiven as much. For thinking it was judging by people's reactions. <laughs> yeah. To it.
0: Um. I, for me, there's the development point that Ben brings up. I just, think, I just think it's an odd life just being a T20 power play specialist, especially with the way T20 cricket's going. You just face fewer and fewer balls, and it's almost desired to 15 balls in innings be your average. And just doing that in the power play all the time, is that really that fun all the time? Do you, right. do, do you ever fancy just you know, batting for a day?
1: <laughs> do you remember we did a podcast in the Oval uh, commentary box, and I was riffing some, some bollocks on that point talking about Jason Roy that the this the sameness of his life when you're out of form it's gonna perpetuate that lack of form because there's no light and shade you're expected to face 20 balls and hit hit them for 40 runs and that is a successful night so there's there's no variety in uh, there's no spice of life if you like you know in 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 his in what's expected of him the thing Smead, I think it's a really nice point because because it could get very very predictable very one paced and if you do find that things aren't coming out the middle and the sun isn't shining every day then then how do you where do you go to revert to a different way of playing a different way of thinking which might then help you develop and come out of that, that a more rounded player and also a more rounded person as well um, just on the, the Smead thing overall uh, he is an outlier I know that you know, cricketers are, you know, gym bunnies more and more. And I know that their attack is their form of defence and all the rest of it. Sure, I know that that's that's naturally how the game is shifting. But still, you have 450-odd professional cricketers just in England. So you have these extraordinary resources and you have a lot of cricketers coming up through the ranks as well who are looking to take one of those places. Uh, Not all of them are Smeeds. Or even far from it. A lot of them are Jake Libby's. Or they are um, Ben Sanderson's, right? And they all have their place in the ecosystem of English cricket. And they all are able to earn enough money to put some food on the table. So Smead might be able to have a nice bottle of plonk alongside that food, if he's lucky. But he's still just part of the overall ecosystem. And not everybody is built like him to do the things that he does. Mm -hmm. He's quite an outlier, I think, in the in the overall picture of English cricket.
0: You have to be so good at white ball cricket and really struggling at red ball cricket for this to be an option at that age. Totally. I, I reckon exactly. in 10 years time, Smead will still be the youngest person to make that decision. Yeah. So I think it's such an extreme example. 100%. Maybe more people at 23, 24, sure. But at 21, I don't think many people are to make this decision. 100%. And,
1: and Will Jacks is a good counter argument because... You know, Jax is a player, was known as a, as a hitter, unadulterated hitter when he began, you know, at, at Surrey. Um, but he, like 99% of cricketers, wants the lot if they're allowed to have a run at it. And so he's developed his spin. he's developed his four day game, he's made important four day runs for Surrey, he's won a championship for Surrey, and he's their player of the year. He's now on a test tour. That doesn't preclude his chances of becoming a gun, world-class white ball cricketer if he's got the talent. You can have it all, if you want it all. And I think the vast majority of talented, expansive cricketers coming through, especially those who can bowl a bit as well, uh, they will want the lot. Not just because the money's good. In If you play four-day cricket in England and five-day cricket in England, the money's good. The money's fine, thanks very much. But also, the position that you hold in the in. In the game, in the in, in the eye, in the in the mind's eye of the public, and of the and of the, the pundits, that is still absolutely critical to your your sense of self. I think in English cricket, more so than still anywhere else in the world, perhaps with the exception of Australia.
2: So it's going to be our first big disagreement. I increasingly think that for some players, they won't be able to have it all. They will end up not having it all without having really made the decision. I think that's almost what's interesting about Smead, is that he sat down and thought this is the direction I want my career to go and that's why I'm doing it. I think, so if you look at Will Jacks, I, so in some ways you could say is a counter argument to that. But I think if Will Jacks actually, if he'd risen a bit faster, say, if he'd had, was it the big bash he struggled in, was it last year? Um, uh, if, if So if he'd had a, you know an astonishing blast season last year, uh, in, as in in 2021, and then he would then got that IPL contract, then all of a sudden you have a player who is just, all they're doing is taking the opportunities that are available to them. And then they end up basically just not playing any championship cricket. You know, he does that and he goes play CPL. And all he's doing is, you know, he's, he's taking a call from his agent and he's saying, do you want to go and play cricket in India and earn loads of money for six weeks? And he says, yeah, sure. Do you go to the Caribbean and earn loads of money and play cricket for four weeks? And actually, there are players who will almost not have... that. That They that, that will just be like taking these amazing opportunities and that will mean they don't play that first class cricket. And that's what's more interesting I, to okay. me choosing that i, I get
1: i get that i get that and obviously the calendar is carved up in a certain way that it can prevent ambitious players uh from wanting from having a run at the lot i can see that i concede that but f- to me what's more important is what your skill set is what the components of your you as a cricketer are uh, if you're an out and out quick built like a boxer like Tamal Mills, and you have a history of injury problems, then you you bowl four overs every three or four days. If you are a Will smead like player who has no compunction for the red ball, never has had, doesn't watch it as he said, quite you know, openly to to a journalist, not interested in it, don't even watch Johnny's best, oh having a whack in a Test match, not bothered, hasn't ever been bothered. Then naturally you move that way. But if you're a Will Jacks who's grown up at the Oval, has been Reared by the likes of Alex Stewart, who's not going to tell you just to go and follow the dollar, he's going to tell you go and be the best cricketer you can possibly be. And he has enough versatility in his game, and he's also earning good money regardless of whether in that April period he goes and sits on the Judy Dench for Kings 11 or whether he, he plays half a dozen Red Bull games. He's 23 years old. He's, he's now got the world in front of him. He's got all the options in front of him because he has the talent and the versatility in his game to go and try and grab it. Players who have less about them will naturally gravitate to, in certain ways, try and earn a living, try and scavenge a living doing what they can do. Some will earn more because that's the nature of the beast and some will earn less because that's the nature of their particular skill set. But the beauty of, in, of cricket, full stop, is that it allows for all of those, that massive spectrum of talent and you can be small and slow and great, and you can be tall and fast and average. You can be all of these different things across the game. That's why, that's why it remains so fascinating for us. I guess the the other thing that will be interesting
2: will be how selection changes based on this, because Will Smead, I like, I don't really think that he couldn't crack first class cricket if you know if that was really what he wanted to do, and he you know uh, he would be able to keep playing and he would do it. And actually, there might come a time when because. I don't think he's different to like a Finn Allen in terms of being a pure slogger. There is game sense there. He's played some big innings. Uh, he is a smart, obviously a very smart guy and a smart batter as well. There might well come a time when he's, you know, he's smashing T20 cricket. So he gets an ODI call as well. And actually he's doing, if he does very well in that, there'll come times when there'll be a call calls or pressure to uh, see if he can make a go of it in, test cricket and it will be depending if if teams are brave enough to make that call I mean I mentioned Brevis earlier but he's another case where he's obviously I think if I think the thing is is if you have the uber talented players who could well be all format players they will they might well end up not playing very much first class cricket to begin with because of how quickly they get pulled into that system but will there be international teams that are brave enough to say we think this guy is just so talented that he will be able to make good on that talent despite not having had that grounding And that'll be fascinating to see over the next 10 years or so, I suppose.
0: Yeah. I said it about Harry Brook at the start of the summer. I said that if he didn't play test cricket this year, I didn't think he ever would because he's too good at T20 cricket to not get an IPL gig and then he's not playing enough first-class cricket. Anyway, if Will Smead is the new enemy uh, of county championship purists, uh, Sam Billings has won back their hearts after announcing that he's not (laughs) going to play in the IPL next year to instead focus playing Red Bull cricket with Kent, but this feels like a sensible decision. Um, he's kind of fallen behind Phil Salt uh, in, in England, in the England white ball hierarchy at the moment. And perhaps test cricket is his best bet of playing for England again soon.
2: Yeah. It's been an odd 18 months for Sam Benin. I don't, I don't really understand how he's fallen down the pecking order. He hasn't really done anything wrong. I guess he just hasn't really done much of anything apart from playing the, a few tests as a sort of a, a last minute replacement. I mean, what he was, he, was, he played in a semi-final uh, just almost a year ago to the to the day or the week or, or I guess, um, and then he yeah plays a couple tests and last played for England in a white ball game in January. So it, I like he's had an, a strange career overall in terms of how much he's just sat on the bench uh, and been in various squads both in the IPL and for England. I think he actually said this in an interview. I think again to Joe uh, saying that you know he's he's how old is he he's uh 31? he's, he's thirty one now but he would probably say he's played like the amount of cricket a twenty seven year old has played. Um, uh, and yeah I mean and there's also there's I think there's a possible chance he gets a decent he gets a go on the test side as a first choice at some point possibly I mean folks is often a player that England are quite keen to, to leave out after a period of poor form uh, and perhaps that will come at some point yeah
0: yeah it's a shame for Billings because not that longer you'd have when he got that 100 against Australia in ODI in 2020, you thought, oh, if Morgan's not going to make the next World Cup, there's a real opportunity for him in the middle order. But it still might happen. Still might happen. Moving on. Ben, Ireland beat Pakistan the other day. It's a big win for them.
2: Yeah, it is. So it was in the first game of a T20i series, which is now level 1-1. One, one, the decider is uh, tomorrow morning. They got absolutely hammered in the ODI series. Um They've been... Uh, record I think was it Maniba Ali I think they only managed to dismiss in the last game of the series with having made hundreds in the first two. Um, uh, and Ireland have they're quietly just a team that have put together a few impressive results. It's like they beat South Africa in the first game of their um home summer. And there are some really good young players in there. I mean Gabby Lewis is is brilliant. She might well be on the way to being Ireland's greatest ever uh, batter. She made 68 out in that game. They've also got Amy Hunter who um a year ago made an odr 100 on her 16th birthday um having made her debut a few days before as a as a 15 year old um yeah and that's it's, one other thing to say on that tour it's been quite nice to see um a side be able to go to pakistan and actually enjoy some of what uh it has to offer they've uh, they've not been confined to their hotels as some other teams have been when they've toured there they've gone out for you know co- co- coffee and hot chocolate at various malls they've seen um sort of various displays of uh national pageantry and that sort of thing um it's just it's just it's just been nice to see that uh slight resumption in pakistan as well as just the pure cricketing thing i guess
1: various displays of national that is the most gardener line i think i've ever heard
0: <laughs> what, what are your favorite displays of national pageantry that you come across
2: <laughs> well you, you you should seek out actually the video of the island women because it's it's almost like a, it's it's like the changing of the guard Answer except, the question. except there's loads of weird sort of like Kicks and flourishes put in there. Trooping the colour is that your favourite? Uh, yeah. What's the one in uh in Edinburgh where they fire the cannon? Yeah, that one. Yeah, it's got it's got a name. that is the name of something else, isn't it? um I so right, gonna,
0: we'll cut think, this. I think we're going to move on. We'll cut um, this. <laughs> fine. A <laughs> uh, couple of one very funny video before the World Cup finals at Crystal Palace, the football team, uh, put out a bit of content where they asked various members of their squad who they wanted to win or who they thought would win the World Cup final. A bit of context, Shaheen Afridi did his rehab before the tournament with Palace. Um, and it, it was quite a funny video. There were some players who clearly had no idea what was going on giving an answer. Uh, highlights from that would be James McArthur, the Scottish midfielder, saying he wanted Pakistan to win because he pointed to the team doctor and said he got the main man fit, referring to Afridi as the main man. That was, that was pretty good. But there, there, that. there
2: are deep links between... Palace and cricket and Pakistani cricket. Azra Ali is a big Palace fan, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, Yannick Bellasi, a massive cricket fan, I think, originating from his days at Palace.
0: So, and Shah Masood is also a Palace fan, I yeah, think. Yeah, 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 I mean, so, yeah, I This has so.
2: Joe. I mean, you know, this is the the pod Joe Harmon wishes he was on. He's been mentioned about three <laughs> times, and we're having an in depth Palace section.
0: My moment of the week, other than England winning the World Cup, obviously. Um, I don't know why, but I rewatched the Ian Botham and Scottish kids video, um, and it just gets better and better every time. So, if you don't know about it. Um, in, it's like he, a play in the eighties. Yeah, it really is. in In the eighties, when then when Beefy was at the, the peak of his powers, he was on a TV show. It was basically called Ask Me Anything or something like that. Um, and he basically takes questions from particularly woke and persistent and articulate Scottish children. Uh, Teenagers and Beefy's on the back foot pretty much the entire way through. It's 20 minutes long, you can find it on YouTube. It's so funny, it's unlike anything I think I've I've ever watched, really. I think I I go back to it about once a year as we approach Christmas. Um, and I felt that I should this week, and I I did, and I really enjoyed it.
1: If you're wondering where where David Brent originated, then undoubtedly, (laughs) and I mean this seriously, Ricky Gervais would have watched that as an impressionable 15 year old and thought, right. I'm going to create that (laughs) character one day.
0: Um, Anyway, that is all we have time for. No, it's not.
1: Is it not? It's not, no. It's not. Uh, I haven't got this written in front of me, so I'll have to try and do it as best I can. Richard Joyce, long-term listener of the show, used to work at Chance to Shine, all-round cracking human being, is now working um, at the... Oh, the Black Prince Trust he works for. The Black Prince Trust is a London-based... Uh, charity and it um is a sports-based charity that develops sporting facilities for for local kids in particular we play five-a-side football at one of their facilities on a friday night anyway the regal basketball court in lambeth is this iconic basketball area a lot of nba players have come over and done done junkets there and so on anyway the 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 floor, the sprung floor of the Regal Basketball Court has become damaged beyond repair. And Richard, on behalf of the trust, is trying to crowdfund 20 grand, of which that will go towards the 64 grand that they need to relay this. Now, this is a very key part for a lot of kids in South London. Um, uh, and so, look, anything you can do, anything you can do, if you've got a fiver down the, you know, down the back of the sofa, please go onto this crowdfunder page. And help uh rich out try and raise this money for the Black Prince fund we'll put the link the crowdfunder link in the uh, description, in and, the description. In the, and in the
0: tweet underneath um the the one where we promote the pod
1: yeah exactly that uh, there are also um just let me check there are rewards as well from local businesses for any donations as well um from a Sunday roast at the jolly gardeners' to sandwiches and coffee at simply bread afternoon tea uh at the theatre tea house etc etc so get behind it please
0: please do that is all for today's show cheers for listening thanks phil thanks ben we'll be back next week after the first couple of england australia odis and just a week or so before the first england pakistan test match
2: Cast network.